stand and turn in your Bibles to Malachi, chapters 1 and 2. If you don't know where Malachi is, it's a short book. It is the last book in the Old Testament. So if you hit the Gospels, you have gone just a tiny bit too far. And you can turn back to Malachi. If you have one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 801. This morning, we were looking at Malachi chapter 1 and chapter 2 through verse 16, and Josh will pick up in verse 17 next week. But please pay attention to the reading of God's holy word this morning. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, Where are the shat- we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, They may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? by offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you any favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show any favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame, or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart or give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, 
and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him that was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble in your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife, but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you to hear from your word. We pray that you would use the reading and the preaching of your word to convince and convert lost sinners and to build up your people through faith unto salvation. We know that this is your work and we ask that you would do it in Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. Spiritual decline and spiritual sickness. We've seen it before. We've seen it in other people and other churches. We've also seen it in ourselves, maybe even in our own church. When spiritual decline and spiritual sickness sets in, it's like a malaise. It turns what was once joyful into a drudgery. It turns acts of love into actions of mere duty. The steam fizzles out, excitement dies off. And it's comparable to me a couple of weeks ago, lying on our couch with a fever, just waiting for the day to end. Spiritual sickness, spiritual decline. For the people of God in Malachi's day, this spiritual sickness hit the community hard, kind of like the seemingly never-ending sicknesses that roll through Livingstone Church through the winter and into the spring. Will it ever end? 
Malachi prophesied right at the chronological end of the Old Testament writings to a people that were in sharp spiritual decline. This takes place a couple of generations and a few decades after the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah, the last two books that we were in. Those two prophets had called God's people to renewed vigor and energy in the work of God to rebuild the temple. And by God's grace, the temple was rebuilt. In 516 BC, they finished the temple and the work of the priests in the temple was resumed for the first time in around 70 years. And with that rebuilding of the temple, the restoration of the priesthood and of sacrifices came a lot of excitement and expectation among God's people for the work that God was doing. Expectation for the full restoration of Judah and Jerusalem. They had expectations for Zerubbabel, the heir to the throne. Expectations that he would become the king that they were waiting for. Expectations for Joshua, the high priest, and his work. Really, they had expectations for the coming Messiah and for his kingdom to be established on earth. But here they are. A couple of generations and decades later, Zerubbabel is dead. Joshua is dead. There is no king on the throne of Israel in Jerusalem. Judah, at this point, is not even an independent nation yet. They are a small, seemingly insignificant province in the great empire of Persia. What are the people of God supposed to do when their expectations for the work of God are not met in their day and age? Well, in the case of Israel in Malachi's day, a sense of disillusionment and dissatisfaction set in among God's people. Again, a spiritual malaise or sickness or decline set in. They were experiencing something that we experience too. What Ian Duguid refers to as life in the gap between promise and reality. Life in the gap between what God has promised to his people and what we experience and see in this life. It's a theme throughout the whole Bible. As God's people are recipients of all of these grand covenant promises. But in this life, they often only see a small part of those promises come to reality. Hebrews 11 gives us a great example of this. It speaks of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and other Old Testament saints, and says that they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. But this wasn't easy for them. And when we have the same reality in our lives, it is not easy. Even though now we live after the first coming of Christ and we have tasted and seen a greater fulfillment of the promises of God than any people before, even greater than Abraham and the patriarchs, we still live as strangers and exiles on this earth. We still live in this gap between what God has promised and the full realization of the promises of God when Jesus returns again. And often in this gap. There are challenges, disappointments, frustrations, and sorrows. And it's easy to become discouraged 
and disillusioned. And for that to lead to a spiritual decline and sickness, a coldness in our hearts towards God. As we look at Malachi chapters one and two today, we're going to see three major symptoms of this spiritual decline. And just like with physical health, the recognition of symptoms has a larger purpose than just noticing that the symptoms are there. The recognition of symptoms is meant to lead to the pursuit of health. So even in these two chapters, as God confronts his people then and confronts us now, it's probably going to hurt a bit, but it is for the purpose of healing. We probably should have told you more often than we did through the minor prophets that these books sting. They hurt. We, are, we see ourselves and we see our sin so clearly. And God points it out to us. But know that the sting that you feel in these minor prophets is the sting of a kind doctor who is stitching up your wounds and putting antibiotics on your cuts. I always remember that as a kid. I hated when I skinned up my knee and they'd put that antibiotic ointment before the Band-Aid and it hurt. It hurt. But it was the work of my parents to heal their child. So again, when you feel the sting of your sin in this book, let it lead to the healing of God. But let's look at these three symptoms in these two chapters. The first symptom of spiritual decline is coldness to the love of God. Coldness to the love of God. The way that God communicates in this book of Malachi is fairly unique among the writings of Scripture. This communication form that we're going to look at is sometimes called the disputation method. And that means that this book is structured like a debate or an argument between God and his people. Multiple times through this book, we see God make a statement to Israel, but then they ask a question back of God. It's not necessarily a question that they physically asked back of God, but it's a question that God knows is in their hearts, kind of like when Jesus was with his disciples or others, and he knew the questions that they had, and he would answer it back to them. God is knowing what's in the heart of his people, and he's saying, you're going to say this, and I want to give you a response. So God makes a statement. He anticipates the question in the hearts of his people, and then he gives an answer to their question and applies it to their life. And we're going to see that multiple times in these disputations through the book of Malachi. We have three disputations in our chapters today. And the first disputation is verses two through five, right after the short introduction of the book. We see the the statement from the Lord, I have loved you. The question of the people, how have you loved us? And then we see the Lord's answer and application to their question. What I want you to notice, though, first off, is God's statement to the people. God is going to be confronting his people sharply because of their sin. But the first words of the Lord in this disputation and in this whole book are, I have loved you. Do we not love that the Lord says that to us and his people? I have loved you before any other statement. Before a confronting of their sin, I have loved you. But then look at the response of the people. How have you loved us? How have you loved us? When our expectations of God's work in our lives and in the world aren't met, we grow cold to the love of God. We begin to fail to recognize 
God's love to us and in our lives. We begin to doubt God's love toward us. God tells us he loves us, and we think, God, if you love me, why is life so hard? God, if you love me, why do I suffer? God, if you love us, why haven't you fixed our world? Why haven't you brought all of your promises to fulfillment yet? Have you ever doubted God's love to you because of present circumstances in your life? I know that I have. I remember very clearly one evening in college in a particularly challenging spiritual season that I sat down with a close friend after an InterVarsity Bible study. And I confessed to my friend, and I remember these words exactly, and I don't remember words in my life often so precisely, but I remember saying to him, I don't even know what it means that God loves me. I don't even know what it means that God loves me. I have doubted the love of God because of present circumstances. But ultimately, when we ask, God, how have you loved us? It's a question of evidence, isn't it? It's not just a question of God, do you love me? It's how have you loved us or how have you loved me? Show me, God. I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing evidence in my day-to-day life of your love for me. But God answers this question, and he answers it in a way that we might find a little odd and in a way that we wouldn't expect. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. God, what are you saying here? Why are you telling me about these two brothers? All the way back in Genesis 25, the birth of two twin boys, Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac and Rebekah. Well, in Genesis 25, we're told that even before the birth of these two twin boys, God chose that Jacob, the younger of the twin brothers, would rule over the older son, Esau. That Jacob, even before their birth, would be the line that God would establish his people through. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now, the point that God is making with this reference to Genesis 25 is that God chose to love Jacob and hate Esau, not because of anything inherent in either of them, but because of God's sovereign will. That's why God reminds us that they were brothers. God chose to love Jacob, not because he was any better than Esau. Paul picks up on this exact verse in Malachi in Romans chapter 9 to make a similar point. God's choice to love Jacob and Esau shows that God is free to show mercy to whomever he chooses to show mercy. And that it isn't based on one person being better than another. In Romans 9, he says, before they were even born, before they had done anything right or wrong, God chose Jacob and not Esau. This ought to be incredibly humbling for us as God's people. This means that if you are a Christian, it is not because you are one ounce better than any other person on this planet. You are no better than your non-Christian neighbor. You are no better than any person in jail. You are no better than any other human. Essentially, you are a Christian because God chose to show mercy and kindness to you. Essentially, God is saying in this answer 
How have I loved you? I've loved you by choosing you. By choosing you even though you didn't deserve to be chosen. And then God proves this out through the differing futures of Jacob and Esau's descendants. Jacob's descendants are the recipients of this prophecy, the Israelites. Esau's descendants are the Edomites. So we see Edom here in these verses. That's Esau's descendants. And in Malachi's day, it looked like Edom was on the rise. It looked like they were doing well. That they had this confidence that they would rise again. They would rebuild and they would be the strong nation. Well, God's people is this seemingly insignificant small people that aren't even their own nation. And just a province under Persia. So from the present perspective, God's people would look at the situation and say, it looks like you love Esau more than Jacob. It looks like you love Edom more than Israel. But what does God say? Edom may build, but God will tear down. And God's people will preserve. They will persevere to see the downfall of Edom. And they will declare one day, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. They have a future because they are God's people, while Edom does not. So how has God loved his people? Not necessarily by giving them better present circumstances. We need to be clear on that. God has loved his people by choosing them and by giving them a future. When we doubt God's love, let's look to these same exact things. Because in our present circumstances, we may not have it better than any other person. The doctrine of election that God chooses his people apart from any good in them and passes over others is a hard doctrine. It is a hard doctrine. The Westminster Confession, our statement of faith in the PCA, clearly affirms that this doctrine is biblical and true, but also has the wisdom to call this doctrine a high mystery. And has the pastoral care to say that this is a doctrine that is to be handled with special prudence and care. I love that the authors of the Westminster had the wisdom to know that this is a high mystery. We need to handle this doctrine of election and predestination with care. Far too often, Calvinists are known for arrogantly bashing others over the head with their doctrine of election to say, I am better than you. My theology is superior to you. I know my Bible better than you. But instead of being a doctrine used for beating others in debate and proving how much better your theology is than other people, election and predestination is a doctrine that is instead used to bring praise and glory to God and not you, to humble you, right? Not make you arrogant. Why on earth would the doctrine of predestination make you arrogant unless you just don't understand it at all? It humbles God's people. And then the last big use of the doctrine of election is assurance. Election is for assurance. That's how it's used so often throughout scriptures. That's how election is used in this passage, to assure God's people that he loves them. The people struggled with assurance of God's love. God, do you really love us? And how have you loved us? So where did God take them? To his sovereign grace, which leads us to trust in God alone. And to trust that if 
I am one of those who belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, that God loves me because he loves me. That God loves me because he chose to love me. Not because I've worked hard enough or I am worthy or I have cleaned myself up or I am reformed enough. God loves me because he loves me. He loves me because in his good pleasure, he chose to love me. And in his love, he will never cast me away. The first symptom of Israel's spiritual decline was their coldness towards this love of God. But when you're cold toward, your love, toward the love of God, it's inevitable that one of the first things to be affected is your life of worship. You do not worship God if you do not acknowledge his love. And that's what we see here. The second symptom of spiritual decline, you see in chapter 1, verse 6, through verse 9 in chapter 2. I know the ESV and most English translations break this up into two, but really this is one large disputation between God and his people. And that second symptom is minimalism in the worship of God. Minimalism in the worship of God. Again, since this is a disputation, God makes a statement, they ask a question, and then God answers. But in this disputation, we see two statements and two questions followed by the answer. The first statement in verse 6 begins with this ordinary life example that God's people would have acknowledged is true. A son honors his father and a servant his master. This would have been uncontroversial in their day. They would have said, of course, a son ought to honor his father. Of course, a servant ought to honor his master. But then God says, if you accept that as true, if that's true for earthly fathers and masters, then since I am a father, where is my honor? Since I am a master, where is my fear? And instead of honoring God, God says that they actually despised his name. So their first question back to God is, how have we despised your name? To which Lord replies, by offering polluted food upon my altar. So they ask their second question, how have we polluted you? And then the Lord gives this long answer that focuses in on the issue of their minimalistic worship. They had despised God's name and polluted his altar through their worship. Look with me to verse 8 and verse 9. We see that they were offering these minimalistic sacrifices. They were actually offering less than the bare minimum of what God had required in sacrifices. Instead of offering to God their best, which they ought to have done, their spotless animals, they offered to God their their blind, their lame, and their sick animals. And then verse 14, if you look ahead to 13 and 14, makes this even more clear. When it says that a person has a male in his flock, he vows to give that to God, but then instead he sacrifices a blemished animal. I mean, it's not really financially savvy to give God the best animal, is it? I mean, if I can just give him the one with the broken leg that really isn't worth a whole lot, I can still like give that as a sacrifice, right? That's a better financial decision for me. I'm not going to give God the best. But again, God takes it right back to this ordinary life example. He says, try that out with your governor and see how that works out for you. Give him the worst 
of what you have and see if you garner his respect. Husbands, try this on Valentine's Day. Actually, don't, but let's follow it as an example here. Try this. Go buy yourself something really nice. And then on your way home, swing by the gas station. Find the cheapest, saddest looking rose that you can find at the gas station. Bring that home to your wife and say to her, here you go, honey. I love you. This is the cheapest thing I could find for you. How is she going to respond to you? Will she accept that sad, wilted rose and your minimalistic, bare minimum effort to show her your care and your love for her? He's saying, is that going to work out with your governors? I'm going to say, husbands, is that going to work out with your wife? Why do we think that we can do the same thing to God? We don't offer animal sacrifices in a temple anymore, do we? But Paul commands us in Romans 12:1, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. To offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Yet in offering God our lives, how often do we reserve the best of our time, the best of our energy, the best of our resources for ourselves? And then we give God the leftovers. What can I give to God that is least costly for me? And then often paired with this attitude of minimalism is this attitude of drudgery and complaint. Look at verse 13. We see that they're giving God less than the bare minimum. And even still, they say, oh, what a weariness this is. This is so tiring. Can we just get over with it already? The ironic and interesting thing is that when we give God the least is often when we complain the most about needing to serve God. How exhausting and how boring the worship of God is. Now, burnout is a real thing. So I'm saying you can give everything and burn out, but we need to discern what's going on in our hearts. Sometimes when we give God the least is when we are most exhausted by the service of God. Because when we prioritize ourselves over the glory of God, the worship of God becomes a chore instead of becoming a joy. And no one likes chores. This all comes from a failure to prioritize the right thing in worship. We sometimes function as if the goal is to come and get worship out of the way so that we can get back to the things that we'd really rather be doing. But look at verse 11. This gives us the goal of what God was really desiring in worship. From the rising of the sun, sorry, in the east, to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. God is reminding us of the whole purpose of what we are doing that God would be worshipped among the nations. What is the purpose of it all? What is the purpose of offering our lives as a sacrifice, of committing ourselves to the work of God, of gathering as the church, of the mission of the church? What is the goal of the Christian life itself? That God would be worshipped among the nations. 
Here's maybe a way to say it. The goal of worship is not to be just one small element of the Christian life. The goal of the Christian life is worship. The goal of worship isn't to be a small part of the Christian life or maybe some inconvenient add-on to what we're doing. The goal of the Christian life is itself to be worshipers of God. And the issue is that we make worship an inconvenient add-on to our busy lives instead of realizing that it is our goal. Didn't Jesus say as much to the woman at the well in John chapter 4? He said, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God isn't seeking people who will merely do a few extra rituals every now and again to appease God. God is seeking worshipers. I'm a pastor. You may be an accountant. You may be a student. You may be a teacher. But above all other occupations, if you are a Christian, you are a worshiper. That is your job. That is actually why you exist. Other parts of your vocation in life may one day fade away, but in eternity, who will you be and what will you do? But worship God. And what is God's purpose? But to gather worshipers from every nation who will glorify his name for eternity. Worship is not an add-on. It is the goal but then the Lord focuses in on why this is happening among the people of Israel. And he recognizes and pinpoints the issue, not as just an issue with the people in general, but an issue with the priests themselves. In chapter 2, 1 through 9, it focuses in on the failure of the priests as teachers. They were the ones that were supposed to instruct the people, guard knowledge, turn people away from iniquity, turn them back to the right way of worshiping and serving God, but instead they had corrupted worship and failed to instruct the people. They had caused a stumbling stone and a block to be brought up in front of the people. We see that they had been more concerned about pleasing other people than pleasing God. That's what it means when they showed partiality in their instruction. And in every age, God has appointed people to be teachers of the people of God, teachers of God's word and his law. And when those teachers fail to teach, when those teachers neglect their duty, spiritual decline among the people is sure to follow. You see, it's an issue among the people, but really more specifically, you can boil it down to an issue of the leaders of God's people, an issue among the priests. And so we see the consequences are really consequences for the priests. In verse 3 of chapter 2, God says he'll spread dung on their, of the offerings on their faces and take them away with it. Now, that's, that's gross. That's disgusting. But it's far more serious than it being gross. The offerings and sacrifices, when they would prepare the animal for offering, there would have been a part of the animal that was considered unclean, the entrails and everything else. And that's the word here for dung in Hebrew is that unclean part of the sacrificial animal. And they would take that part out and they would discard of it outside the city. And so what God is saying is in offering these sacrifices, you're not actually making yourself clean. I'm considering you a part of the 
unclean part of this offering. I'm going to wipe you down with it. I'm going to carry you out of the city and I'm going to get rid of you. So this isn't just a gross thing. This is a serious consequence for the, for the priests of God. Then we see in verse 2 of Malachi 2, the consequence of the cursing of their blessings. One of the great privileges and joys of being a priest was to be able to offer the blessing of God to the people of God, particularly the blessing given to the priests in number 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When I was preparing for ordination, one of the things I most looked forward to in being ordained was having the privilege of declaring the benediction to the people of God at the end of the service. This is a privilege of the priests. And God is saying, I'm going to turn that privilege into a curse. Essentially saying, I'm going to reverse that blessing. Instead of Lord bless you and keep you, it's going to be now the Lord curse you. The Lord destroy you. The Lord hide his face from you. The Lord judge you and on and on. We also see this earlier in verse nine of chapter one, language from the, this priestly blessing. Entreat the favor of God that he may, may be gracious to us, but with such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to you? Literally, it's, will he lift up his face to you? This is language from number six. And the answer is no. With these sacrifices, God is going to ignore the blessings of the priests, and he's going to turn it into a curse. And then the last consequence for the priests is in verse 10. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. He's saying, if you're going to do this, it's better that you just close the temple altogether. It's better that someone would just go in, close the doors, lock the door, put up a sign that says close until further notice and just, just stop. If you're going to do this, if you're going to give me these half-hearted offerings and worship, if you're going to ignore my teaching and my word, I would rather that you just didn't do it at all. What a condemnation of the work of the priests in their day. And what a warning to us. We're not immune to this. If a church neglects the word of God and the right worship of God, we're not immune to God saying, I'd rather that you just shut the doors. And that has happened throughout the age of the churches, churches that neglected God's worship and gospel, and he shut their doors. We're not immune to that too. But if the issue of minimalistic worship stemmed from an issue in the priesthood, then the solution also must be a solution of the priesthood. The solution to the issue of worship is by fixing the priests, that they would do what they ought to do. Now, there are many ways that the Old Testament points us forward to Jesus, but maybe one way that we don't think about often enough is how Jesus is seen through contrast in the Old Testament. By neglecting to do all that the priests ought to have done, they show us a negative image of Jesus a negative image of the one priest who came and did all that he should have done. The priest who teaches us true instruction, who guards knowledge, who turns God's people from iniquity. The high priest who doesn't offer the minimalistic least that he can give to God, but the high priest who instead gave the highest price. The high priest who gave up himself an unblemished, perfect, spotless sacrifice to redeem worshipers from the rising to the setting of the sun from every nation. More than anything, when we consider 
our own struggles to worship. What we need is not some tip or trick to make our heart be more in tune with God's word so that we would worship him rightly. What we need is not a tip. What we need is a person. What we need to worship God is a priest. What we need to worship God is a new worship leader. Not not me, not the people playing guitar or whoever leads the liturgy. We need someone who will lead us in the worship of God. Someone that we can put our eyes upon and follow. And that person is a great priest. That person is Jesus. The last disputation that we see in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16 deals with the third symptom of spiritual decline, faithlessness in marriage as designed by God. So we have seen coldness to the love of God, minimalism in the worship of God, and then lastly here, faithlessness in marriage as designed by God. And I'll keep this more brief for us. But the reality is that decline in our spiritual lives is rarely disconnected from decline in other areas of our lives. And one of the first places where spiritual sickness manifests itself is in our marriages. In this third disputation, God focuses in on two major issues in the marriages in Israel. Verses 10 through 12, the first issue is Israelites, particularly the men in Israel, marrying the daughter of a foreign God. This is Israelites marrying non-Israelites. Now, this isn't a race issue. This isn't an ethnicity issue. This is a religion issue. This is God saying, if you are one of God's people, you should only marry another one of God's people. It's the same instruction we get in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 7, to marry only in the Lord. Now, this isn't to say that if someone converts to Christianity and they're married, that they won't find themselves in a marriage with a non-Christian. 1 Corinthians 7 deals also with that and particularly looks at the role of a wife to pursue godliness in that marriage with the hopes of perhaps seeing her husband converted to God. But the issue here and the issue that we see throughout the Old Testament is when Israelites would marry people who worshipped idols. And what they did is not just betray that marriage, they actually were betraying the whole people of God. They were welcoming idol worship into the covenant community. And it not only affected them, it often affected the whole community. It drew God's people to worship idols along with those people who had been brought in through marriage. So God is saying, for your own protection and the purity of your worship, marry only in the Lord. And that is a true statement for us just as much now in the new covenant as then. Then the second issue is verses 13 through 16, and the issue here is divorce. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. The specific issue that they were dealing with was husbands who had divorced their first wives, the wife of their youth, as they're called in this passage, for the purpose of financial gain. They were making marriage about this personal financial game of how they could earn the most and marry up and all of these other things. And so they were betraying their first marriage covenant. Now, even if we don't do this, even if I, we we don't divorce our wives or husbands for financial reasons, we still are prone to treat marriage as if it's about us. 
which is exactly what they were doing. Marriage can easily be about me and my gain and my pleasure and what I get from him or her or who he or she makes me and how I feel about what is going on. But the root of the issue stems from forgetting God's design in marriage in a way that makes us believe that marriage is about us. But marriage isn't about you. Marriage is about God. And marriage belongs to God. He owns it. He designed it. And so what God does here is emphasize and remind them of three aspects of his design of marriage. First is that marriage is a covenant. We see this language in verse 14. Means that marriage is not only a relationship between a husband and a wife, it is a relationship between a husband and a wife before God. When you enter into a marriage, it's a covenant before God, which means that if you are unfaithful in your marriage, you're not just unfaithful to your husband or wife, you are unfaithful to God Himself. That adds a certain weight to the reality of the marriage covenant that we cannot take lightly, that they were taking lightly. Marriage is a covenant. But second, we see marriage as a union. We see this language in verse 15. Did God not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? This is language from Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Union. What this means is that to sever a marriage covenant is to tear in two something that God has brought together in To one, there's a certain violence that is done to the covenant when you're tearing apart something that God has united. This is why we have language in our marriage ceremonies, our wedding ceremonies. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Or if you like the old language, what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Kind of like that second way of saying it. But it's that same idea. What God has united, don't tear apart. Marriage is a union. And then lastly, we see third, that marriage is for children. What was God seeking in marriage but godly offspring? Now, as a husband in a marriage where we have struggled to have children, there's a lot of pain here. But what I want you to know and what I need to remind myself of all the time is that the pain that we feel when we struggle to have children is only a pain because we are longing for a good part of God's design. It does not negate what God says, that children and godly offspring are a blessing from the Lord. The pain comes because we recognize that that's a reality, and because we long for a good part of God's design, yet we live in a fallen world with pain and suffering. What this reminds us of is that children are not to be viewed as some hindrance to your self-fulfillment. Children in marriage are, as Psalm 140, uh, 127 says, that children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And again, this isn't to say that all Christians will have children. In fact, some of the greatest Christians in history didn't have children. But it is saying that raising children in the faith to know, love, and serve God is one of the greatest blessings of the Christian life and one of the central designs for Christian marriage that we should not take lightly. And again, this goes back to the beginning of Genesis, does it not? In Genesis 1, be fruitful and multiply 
and fill the earth. Now, when we think of all these areas related to marriage and children, all of us have experiences in one way or another in this world that is so marred by our sin and the sin of others that make these realities painful for us. Maybe your story is one that involves divorce or being affected by the divorce of your parents or someone else. Maybe your story is one that includes faithlessness and failings in marriage or the pain of the failings and faithlessness of others. Maybe your story is one of longing for the good gift of God of marriage or the good gift of children, but in his wise and sovereign providence, that is not his plan for you at this time. But whatever these ways, these realities may affect you, the answer is always the same. The answer is to look to Jesus, to look to the faithful husband of God's people, the one who gave himself for his bride, the one who loves her and will never leave her and never forsake her. To look to Jesus, the son of God, who makes us children of God through adoption. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Look to him, our great priest, our perfect sacrifice and our loving and faithful husband. Let's pray.